I'm a card-carrying Basie at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. Welcome to the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast, your crash course of the major themes from our two-hour program, Wharton Moneyball, which you can hear live on Wednesdays in the morning from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. I'm your host, Professor Adi Weiner. I am a collaborator with my colleagues and other co-hosts and co-founders, Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow, and Shane Jensen. We were not all in the studio. Shane was off on vacation, so it was just Cade and Eric and me. And we were talking about college sports, basketball. We spent a whole half hour talking about basketball. We then talked about our first guest was Vasu Kulkarni, a Penn graduate and a founder of Crossover. This is a venture that looks at video from all different sports and annotates it and creates statistics from it, which it then passed on to um, the teams. And we also interviewed Ben Zalsmer, who is actually an analyst from the L.A. Dodgers, but he also is a writer for The Hollywood Reporter. And we focused on Oscar predictions with Ben. So let's go to our first clip, which is discussion of allocating money for college sports. We didn't have a guest. It was just the three of us in the studio. I started my academic career at Duke, and they were they did a study at the time. I was really impressed that they did this. They said, we're going to review all of our athletic programs and make a reasoned decision about where we allocate resources. We're not just going to blindly keep on pushing. It's like we're going to decide which ones to double down in and which ones to maybe cut back in. So setting aside Title IX, which I can believe could complicate things, but Duke at the time said, look, we're, we're you know, they're better at football than they used to be, and that some of that's their coach, but they went out and got that coach, and they, they kept that coach despite the Rick Cutcliffe, despite the fact that other people have wanted him. Rice, perennial baseball power. How can Rice be good at any sports? Well, they've, they've clearly made some kind of choice that we're going to be good here. So there are const- some schools are unconstrained. Florida is unconstrained. Texas is unconstrained. They can push really hard at both programs. Why might one be good and not the other? I'm going to mostly just say regression of the mean. That's what I. You no, know, but year after year, you think. Well, sometimes, some, sometimes Florida you, wins. Sometimes Florida wins a national championship. Yeah. Texas has been in the Final Four. That's the best they can claim. But so, you know, you condition on a team. You condition on any trait being extremely successful. Any other trait is essentially not going to be as successful. Likely to be not as successful. That's one theory. Another theory might be. You know, I'll make this up. So, if I'm a great basketball player, do I want to go to Alabama and be a second class citizen? Yeah. In other words. I'm not a football player at Alabama. I'm a basketball player. Yeah. No, I'm saying I like, but first of all, I like your, I would have yeah, gone, argument one, I would have gone regression to the mean. Yeah. Argument, argument two, two could be. There's culture and, and, and hierarchy. Culture and hierarchy. Option three could be there's also randomness in the quality of coaches. Oh, yeah. Similarly. Oh, for sure. All right. So That's part of Alabama That's part of is able one. to get Nick Saban, yeah. but they're not able to get. You know, pick your favorite college basketball coach. They're not able to get but that's that really just Mike Shashevsky. Me- that's a mechanism explaining number one. That's a mechanism for number one. That's the reason. That's the reason you see regression of the mean. The discussion there was uh, a very heated one. Sounded between Cade and Eric. The conversation centered around why is there not much of an overlap between the dominating teams in football and the dominating teams in basketball. You can barely think of 
a team, certainly in any given season, that competes in both. And even year to year, there just really is a pool of teams that do well in football, a pool of teams that do well in basketball, and they don't overlap very much. At least that was the hypothesis. And what Cade and Eric were arguing about is exactly why. It's not exactly clear. Um, part, of the, uh, part of the explanation, one of the explanations, is purely regression to the mean in the sense that you can't, it's not very unlikely that you're going to be good at two things. It's easier to be good at one, but good at two is just much, much more infrequent. I don't think that's the best hypothesis. That was part of the debate. The other debate had to do with psychology and the star athletes wouldn't want to be at a school where they dominated football if they were a basketball player and vice versa. The other argument was potentially centered around the coach. Um, perhaps it's worthy of a longer discussion at a later date. So let's go to our next clip, which is a discussion of the big moves of the past week where DeMarcus Cousins uh, moved from Sacramento to the Pelicans, um, leaving the Pelicans or allowing the Pelicans to have two tremendously talented big men and whether that really works out well. On the sports side, and speaking of Anthony Davis, the biggest NBA news outside the All-Star game was the trade this week. The yep. Sacramento Kings moved to Marcus Cousins. There's been a lot of question about whether they were going to. They pulled the trigger on it. They sent him to the Pelicans and now he's paired with Anthony Davis down there. So there's uh, that was the second thing on my list. So there's a couple things that are interesting about that. So just to give everyone some data here. Robbery, I think, is what I was hearing. Maybe. But <laughs> let me just give everyone some hey, data. Hey, man, negotiation, well, it all depends on your alternatives. They didn't have good alternatives. Yeah, let me give everyone some data here. So Anthony uh, DeMarcus Cousins sorry, is uh, averaging 27.8 points per game. That's the fourth in the NBA. He's averaging 10.6 rebounds per game. So he's only one of four players in the NBA that's actually averaging 20. You know, the magic number in the NBA for a big man has always been 20-10. Can you be a 20-10 guy? Well, he's a 27.8, 10.6 guy. Nearly 30-10 guy. Okay. Correct. Yeah. He's, the, he's got the ninth highest, if you want to use advanced metrics, player efficiency rating in the NBA, DeMarcus Cousins, mm-hmm. right above, what's his name? LeBron James. <laughs> he's above LeBron James in his player efficiency rating. The question becomes, in the era of small ball, what is it, Adi, you said last week? Three is greater than two. 50% right? bigger than two. Yeah, it's 50% bigger. Not one bigger. point bigger. That's Correct. the mistake. Do you want <laughs> your two best players, this is the downside of the trade, to be big men? Mm-hmm. So now you've got your center, which DeMarcus Cousins is going to play center, Anthony Davis, who's going to play power forward. Your two best players, by far now, are your center and your power forward. Mm-hmm. Three is greater than two. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, from the team's perspective, was it a good trade? In other words, is that the foundation? You know, this isn't Kevin McHale Day and Larry Bird anymore, although Bird could shoot, obviously, a lot of threes, one of the great three-point shooters of all time. DeMarcus Cousins actually is not a bad three-point shooter, even though he's a 280-pound center. But (laughs) is that the way, just would advanced analytics say, you want guys that can shoot a lot of twos really well? I don't think so. I don't think it makes them competitive for the long run. Now, now, advanced analytics do like shots at the rim. So if these they guys do. play really close to the bucket, they're not settling for these mid-range two-point shots, then it's not the worst thing in the world. Well, I think that discussion, for the most part, explains itself. I'll just put a little bit of context in. As I said, the idea being, what does a team do when it has two big men? And is it really a good move? I think, for the most part, it was considered a really big victory for the Pelicans. They were able to acquire a tremendously good player 
fairly cheaply, and they didn't give up much, and so it was considered a, mostly a lopsided trade. But the counter-argument is maybe it's not so valuable in the end. You have two very big men, to, despite the fact that they're both very good. And I think that my colleagues, uh, Cade and Eric, were able to wrap that up pretty nicely. We'll continue to watch that trade into the future. Now let's change gears a little bit. This is our first interview with Vasu Kulkarni. Vasu is the founder of Crossover. Now this is a very interesting business. He began it when he was a Penn undergraduate. He was inspired by it, where he was asking the question, how is it possible for an ordinary team, either a, not a, a, a um, fully funded college team or a high school team or a, not a fully funded sport, how are they going to manage to do, compete and create an analytics department that's competitive? And the basic idea would be, how do you create a film library and an annotated database to go along with it? And he had a great idea. Let's listen to the first clip. So tell us now, so I got the film, what, what, what happens with the film? Right, so you upload that film to Crossover on game night after game's over, and then you go to bed. You don't have to worry about it, which is not what most coaches do, at least in the past 40, 50 years since film's been around. They, they sit there all night and they, they watch it. So here we say, listen, don't do a damn thing, just upload it to us, go to sleep. By the time they've woken up, we've basically gone through... And we have meta-tagged or indexed every single play of that game. So for a basketball game, for every possession of that game, we have added data on, you know, was it a half-court set? Was it a fast break? Did they run some kind of out-of-bounds play? Was it a second-chance opportunity? Who was the player? What was the outcome of that possession? Was there a made shot, a missed shot, a turnover, a foul, a deflection? Um, where on the court did it happen? Was there an assist? Was there literally anything and everything you can think of that you can add as data to a basketball possession we're doing. And we do all of this by crowdsourcing the data. So we have this giant marketplace of people that essentially earn money for tagging possessions of basketball games. Wait a minute. And- so I, I'm, I have in my mind thinking to myself, my God, they have amazing video and analytic technology. They can turn the, and, and do this technology. You're actually using people. It's, it's pretty much impossible to auto-tag video that is, A, coming from sort of a single camera angle, two, is not a stationary camera, uh, three, is probably not ultra HD. It's, it's pretty much impossible. Wow. We've okay, that's, that's good. You've tried to do that. Right. Oh, yeah. And, 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 you know, it's the holy grail. Everyone's trying to auto-detect what's going on in videos, and there are certain types of video with which you could do some level of this. Um, you know, with movie scenes, there's people that are that are tracking who's the actor and uh, is there a Coke can somewhere in the back of the video. There's stuff like that where with still images and with not fast-moving imagery that you can do uh, image recognition and processing on. With, with the type of video we're dealing with, it's next to impossible to do anything fully automatically. Um, and so we basically rely on people, but we rely on a massive marketplace of people. I mean, to give you a sense of scale... Um, right now, we're doing about 2,500 games a night, which is you know, one and a half to two full NBA seasons worth of games in a night. So they're doing about 1,500 games a night. And what does it mean to do a game? Well, a game is a video recording. It's provided by individuals who are at the game, not professionals. They record it with their local camera, their handheld camcorder, or maybe $200 digital video camera. And they upload it to the website, and then an army of crowdsourced individuals, presumably played not too much, but presumably also trained, they watch the videos, both basketball, it's whether it's different sports they're doing, and then they annotate and tag the results, and they do this 
overnight. Every night, 1,500 games. That is almost a breathtaking number, and it's all done through crowdsourcing. So it's not done through advanced video analytics. It's just done through trained people. What an interesting model. Let's listen to the next clip from Vasu, where he talks a little bit about what kind of data is collected from these video clips. What's the analytics that's going on on Crossover, or are you guys purely just a data side? No, there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Again, you know, we, we need to keep it simple. Um, we can't go crazy with this stuff as much as we have so much data, and there's really no end to the types of cool things you can do with it. The reality is, you don't want to overwhelm uh, an average high school coach by giving him all sorts of stuff that he doesn't really know how to put into effect um, on the on the court. And so, you know, we do a couple things on the statistical side. One, your basic box score, which is great. Um, you could probably get that anyway from the scorebook, but we're a nice um, electronic version of a, of a detailed box score. And then we go into sort of about a hundred other statistics such as the ones you normally see, four factors, um, which Dean Oliver created. And then you've got stuff like location-based statistics. So what percentage of your assists are coming near the rim, in the paint, in the mid-range, beyond the arc? You would think that that's a simple enough stat that someone would have already created, but turned out no one really does assist distribution by location. Mm -hmm. Um, We do other shot selection stats around catch and shoot versus off the dribble, contested versus uncontested by location. So it's really stuff that if you looked at, you'd be like, okay, that makes complete sense. I don't really need to learn what the statistic means. I know what it means. It's just that no one's ever really calculated this for me and given it to me uh, on an interface where I can just look at it. And then we do a bunch of stuff around visualization. So shot charts, heat maps, uh, shot distributions Mm. by location. And so we just give all of that in a very, very easy-to-use interface on mobile, tablet, web, it, it literally, our coaches need zero training to use our platform. On day one, they come in, they know exactly what to do because everything's basketball terminology, and and we're keeping it very, very simple. Yep, very, very simple. That's all that's really needed when you collect data, and we always try to keep it very, very simple on our end as well. Advanced analytics really are not as powerful or not as necessary as as the very simple stuff. So let's go to our last clip, which will be a short discussion with Ben Zosmer, who is a writer for The Hollywood Reporter and also an analyst for the L.A. Dodgers. We're talking about the Oscars. Is there anything, except for the fact you mentioned data sparseness as one, but can you use, I'm sure a lot of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball want to know this, can you use basically the same models, the same principles to predict the Oscars that you're going to use for your day job in baseball and predicting who the great players are going to be or trying to predict what you should do under some in-game situation? Are the same basic methods used, just the labels are changed and the data is a little bit different? Yeah, I definitely think of them in the same vein. They're both regression analysis, or to put it in more layman's terms, they're both taking uh, as much data as you've got and trying to accurately determine how much weight to assign different predictors in order to make a prediction. Uh, So the basic principles are all there. It's trying to handle situations when your data is messy or missing. It's trying to uh, adjust for things like mean regression, like recency bias, uh, trying to determine uh, what priors are to get really into the the mess of using statistical language. But yes, the principles are all uh, basically the same, just the the way you talk about it 
sometimes very different. Well, you've also got to be creative. You talked about there not being much data, so you have to look to some interesting sources for predictors, right? So can you, you recently wrote in the New York Times about how you predicted best song at the Oscars, which we thought was interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, best song. It's one of those that uh, I'm lucky this year when uh, there's a year where everybody coalesces around uh, one category or one nominee, which in this case is City of Stars from La La Land. Um, but you take a look at some years like last year when uh, everybody is split between Writings on the Wall from Spectre until it happens to you uh, from Youth or from The Hunting Ground. That was the Lady Gaga song. And, and those categories can get very tricky. In The New York Times, I wrote about the relationship between YouTube views and the best song category. Right. Uh, certainly, that's a, a bit more abnormal of a predictor. YouTube views have nothing to do with any other category. Well, how, how do you have enough positive. data to make a forecast? So fortunately, uh, there is a very strong correlation between YouTube views and popularity, even for the songs that came out before YouTube, because people have gone back and put them online, and the more mm -hmm. popular songs people go and watch. It's absolutely not perfect, because the logic's a little circular since those views came after the Oscars. Right, right. But <laughs> like with all Oscar data, I sort of take what I can get. Yeah, you do have to take the data that you can get. Of course, the prediction for City of Stars did win the Oscar. That was the easy one. The uh, winner for the best picture was actually picked surprisingly incorrectly by Ben Zosmer, even though that was his highest rated movie by far, but uh, actually went quite against Vegas odds and, and didn't actually win. That was uh, Moonlight, which won in the great uh, mix-up at the end. Well, that concludes another edition of the Wharton Moneyball post-game podcast. If you want to hear the full show, it's available for download on SoundCloud and on the Apple iTunes store under podcast. Don't forget to check out Wharton Moneyball live every Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 111. It is also replayed throughout the week. Please join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Moneyball Postgame Podcast. And until then, enjoy your sports and enjoy your stats.